Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, Gabe. And good morning, everybody. Uh, I need to start out this morning. I gotta apologize for something I said last week that was that was wrong, and we need to fix that. Last week I made the comment that Christ's cleansing of the temple in chapter two was a fulfillment of Psalm 99:6. What I meant to say was Psalm 66:9. Now, I know you've lost sleep over this. I want to fix that. I apologize. So, if you're familiar with the stories um, of an author by the name of Mark Twain, if you like Huck Finn and uh, the various things that he wrote talking about those boys floating down a river on a raft, you may be interested in a little bit about the faith journey of Mark Twain because it's pretty twisted. Uh, he was a man who never could quite get it, despite all the Presbyterian training that he'd had. And he had a lot of misconceptions about sin and guilt that may have contributed to his ultimate rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in a book that was written about him, it says he spent his Sundays in a church where the preachers were very clear about hell and the odds of a wayward child going there. He cried to his mother that he had ceased to be a Christian, but he said his trained Presbyterian conscience, as he later called it, swallowed guilt like air. He said there was no death in his family or among his friends he did not blame himself for. He said, I took all the tragedies to myself and tallied them off in turn as they happened, saying to myself in each case with a sigh, another one gone on my account. Later there would be no economic or injustice in which he regarded his hands as clean. Now imagine carrying that kind of load. As a matter of fact, I think a lot of writers and authors and, and artists carry a, a great deal of guilt and pain. Oftentimes it's through that that they write and do their artistry. But so many people make the mistake of Mark Twain. They find themselves in one of two categories. Either one, they think that uh, they're a pretty good person, right? They've not committed a murder. They've tried to speak well of people. They try to do the right things. As a matter of fact, they may volunteer for different organizations and seek the social justice of those who are underprivileged. Or they may think that they are so rotten and so guilty that there's no way that they can be saved. As a matter of fact, many Christians have a very hard time, I think, getting out from under that sense of guilt for something they have done in the past. In both camps, there's wrong thinking about self. But then Christ has something different in mind altogether than either one of these places. That by virtue of coming to faith in him, we are completely changed. And what I want to talk about this morning are these four ways that Christ changes us. How does Christ change me? And we're going to listen in on a secret conversation that happens in the middle of the night. A Pharisee, a man who knew the law, who knew all the rules of religion, had heard about Christ, he and his religious group. And he was curious about this. Somebody needed to go and approach Christ 
and figure out what was going on. I mean, the man was doing miracles. It seemed that he was of God. So who is this guy? He had some questions he needed to answer. So we're going to look at this conversation. We're going to eavesdrop on this secret conversation that happens at night in John chapter 3. We're going to look at John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. If you would, please stand with me as we go through these verses. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. And if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave, him his, that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You may be seated. <clears throat> We're going through the book of John. We're seeing Christ do signs and miracles to demonstrate to the people that he is, in fact, fully God. So they would see these things, so they would believe in him, so they would understand that he came to bring light in the middle of darkness. And John's gospel is different than Matthew, who wrote to the Jews, or Mark, who focused on ministry. Luke wrote to the Gentiles. John is showing us the lofty heights of who Jesus is. And this morning, we're going to take a look and see what all happens to someone, as you see it mentioned there in this chapter, what happens to someone when they become a Christian. And what needs to happen just prior to someone becoming a Christian. 
And this morning, I want to see these four changes that happen. I want us all to see these four changes that happen to someone when they are converted, when they come to faith in Christ, when they become a Christian. There's so many different ways that we say that this happens. So let's take a deeper look at this man, Nicodemus. <clears throat> he was a prominent Jew. As a matter of fact, he was a ruler of the Jews. He was a member of a group called the Sanhedrin. Now, this was an immensely powerful group of men. If you were to compare this group to America, they would be all three branches of the government, the executive, the legislative, and the judicial. They're all three. They ruled. They said what was what. They knew all of the laws of the Old Testament and all the laws that had been added to those, and they followed them diligently, and they took pride in how well they could follow all of these laws. Now, this man comes to Jesus at night. He's not wanting to advertise this conversation that's going to happen. He doesn't want other people to see. See, Jesus had a following, and there was fear that he was becoming powerful. And how were they going to handle that? What kind of answers were they going to give the people? Now, he recognizes Jesus as a teacher. He even says, look, we know you're from God, otherwise you couldn't be doing the miracles that you're doing. And he's wanting to know implicitly, although he doesn't ask the question this way, who are you? But see, then Jesus cuts right to the chase. He knows what Nicodemus wants. He knows what Nicodemus' priorities are. He knows what this Sanhedrin's priorities are. And he is unconcerned with the priorities that they have. And he tells them, unless you're born again, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, there's a really important point to be made here. He uses this, this phrase, this, rather this word, this Greek word, anothen. And it typically, in your Bibles, it's translated again. However, the word has two meanings. It can mean again, or it can mean from above. Now, when Nicodemus hears this, he takes it to mean again. As a matter of fact, that's why that verse is typically translated uh, that way, is with the word again. But Jesus actually meant the latter meaning here, that you must be born from above. Now, Nicodemus has a very honest question about what Jesus meant with his response on what it takes to get into this, this kingdom of heaven. And the first statement, you must be born again, would mean that you must be born from above. But that's not the way Nicodemus understands it. He asks a follow-up question. I mean, I think he's just being honest with what he's being told here. He said, well, look, I, it's not like I can, you know, crawl back into my mother's womb here and, and come back out again. Uh, I, that's nonsensical. But Jesus is talking about something else entirely. He's saying you have to be born from above in order to see the kingdom of heaven. And then he further explains this as being born of water and spirit. He says it there in verse 5. Now things are really going down the rabbit hole for Nicodemus now. Now he's wondering, okay, what is it that you're talking about, Jesus? Now there's some really important points to be made about this verse. It's it's very confusing to a lot of people. There's even been denominations started just on what this verse is saying right here. So we need to unpack this a bit. 
Um, the most important thing to note here, it's not talking about two births, one being of the water and one being of the Spirit. It's talking about a single birth. As a matter of fact, in the Greek, there is no preposition or article for the word spirit. It's just born of water and spirit. Oftentimes it's added. However, in the Greek, it's not there. So we're talking about a single birth. Now, some have thought, well, this is referring to a physical birth, one of water because of all the amniotic fluid that comes out of a woman when a, a child is born. And then when we become a Christian, that's our second birth or of baptism. However, it doesn't seem that any of these are the case for a couple of reasons. First of all, the ancient audience John was writing to, um, they didn't speak of physical birth as being a birth of water. That just wasn't a phrase that they would use. So later on when Jesus rebukes Nicodemus for misunderstanding what's going on here down in verse 10, uh, that wouldn't make sense. The rebuke wouldn't make sense if Nicodemus should have understood what it was in terms of a water birth. And then secondly, there's the grammatical reason. And that is, again, that word spirit does not have its own preposition and article. It doesn't say of the spirit, just spirit of the water and spirit. Meaning it wasn't to be read as of the water and of the spirit, but just water and spirit. Kind of like, if you like ice cream, you don't buy ice cream of the Ben and of the Jerry's. It's just Ben and Jerry's. So it's just one birth of water and spirit. But I mean, even, okay, so what does that mean? Let's dig deeper. So being born from above, that Jesus is saying is being born of water and spirit. And it's a unified concept to express an Old Testament promise of renewal. I loved Gabe's prayer this morning, talking about that spirit renewal. It was to occur at the end times according to the Old Testament. So the prophets in particular described this coming era when the transforming spirit of God would be poured out on all the people. They looked forward to the coming of the spirit that's in Isaiah 32, 15 and Joel 2, 28. And sometimes this renewal is described metaphorically as water. And if you look at Isaiah 44, 3, it says, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. So this is talking about a work of the Holy Spirit that's to come. And notice the words water and spirit are joined together as these life-giving gifts of God. And that figurative pair, those two words, appear uh, again and again in the Old Testament. And again in Ezekiel 36, I think it makes it even more clear what's going on, this idea of being born of the water and of the Spirit. And it, when, when Ezekiel's talking about in the end times how Israel hearts, their hearts are going to be transformed, it says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, 
and be careful to obey my rules. So these verses are describing a future time when God is going to do these things. We describe it as putting our faith in Christ. So many things happen when we come to faith in Jesus. So first of all, the text tells us that we are going to be reborn. Reborn. As a matter of fact, um, under that first point, sub-point B, it should be, or the, the second sub-point of the first, it should be not baptism, but born. Be born of water and the Spirit. That's how we are reborn into the faith. And I love what one Bible translator described in an effort to, to translate John 3.3 3 into the language of another people. He's working with people in Papua New Guinea. And he gets to this verse, and he's like, yeah, this is really kind of an obscure passage. How am I going to make these people understand what's happening in this verse? Born again, or born from above. And he came across a co-translator who was a native of the area, and the man explained a custom they had in Papua New Guinea. He said, sometimes a person goes completely wrong, and they won't listen to anybody. And he said, what we do is, he said, we all get together in the village, and we place that person right in the middle of all of us. And he said, the elders talk to that person for a long, long time. They say, you've gone wrong. They tell him, all your thoughts and your intentions and your values, they're all wrong. And now you have to become a baby again and start everything from the beginning. So that was the answer this translator was looking for. And look at how he translated this verse this is in the Binumerian language. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he becomes like a baby again and relearns everything from God's word. That's how we change. This is the idea of completely being reborn. Because the values of this world do not match the values of God at all. They are opposed to each other. So we have to be reborn. We have to be born from above. And then there's a second way we change. Jesus continues in verse 6 to discuss this change, what it means to be born from above, and describes this work of the Holy Spirit. Look at what he says in verse 8. He says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now what's going on here? Here's a second word that has a double meaning. Wind and spirit are both from the same Greek word pneuma. That's where we get the word pneumatic. If you work with pneumatic tools. And John is, goes on to describe the nature of the spirit. The nature of the spirit is that he cannot be controlled by men. God, the Holy Spirit, cannot be controlled by men. And this is the regenerative power of the Holy Spirit working through someone. Like the wind. You can't see the wind work. You can't see the wind, but you can see the effects of the wind. He's saying the Holy Spirit is working the lives of people this way. You can see the effects. You can hear the wind. You can detect it, but you can't see it. And what does Jesus say at the end of verse 8? He says, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, what does that mean? So when Jonathan Edwards, um, he was one of the primary voices of the first Great Awakening, when this man would speak, 
All kinds of people would show up. All kinds of people would come to saving faith. And it was one of those powerful times of revival in America. And somebody said, look, how is this happening? Why is this happening? Why are thousands of people showing up to hear you speak? And he gave a very simple, surprising answer. He said it was a surprising work to him, too. He said, and the Holy Spirit will blow where the Holy Spirit will blow. The wind and the Spirit have a will that is uncontrolled by man. So is a born-from-above person. And guess what? God is working on you in a way that is not to be controlled by men. And we are people who like to be in control. But we can change our... But we are being changed into someone else. And this work the Holy Spirit does in someone that happens in a moment, just before they believe, is called regeneration. Oh yeah, that's Numa. We are regenerated. And this is a good definition of regeneration, a secret act of God in which he imparts new spiritual life to us, sometimes called being born again. Being born again. It's a mysterious activity of God when the Holy Spirit comes and regenerates you, puts a new spirit in you. This makes you capable of belief. And as a result of this generation, your flesh, that is that part of you that resists God, resists this act, starts desperately wanting to hang on. That's why there was a Puritan pastor named John Owen. He talked about the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, and he said this, As among all the doctrines of the gospel, there was none opposed with more violence and subtlety than that concerning our regeneration by the immediate, powerful, effectual operation of the Holy Spirit of grace. Because, see, as Christians, we are simultaneously good with God. In other words, you are loved, you are forgiven by God, However, we continue to sin. We are sinners experiencing the love and grace of God. And when we are regenerated, all of a sudden we can become pleasing to God. We may do something with a right motive. I might be nice to someone that the Holy Spirit brings into my path, not because I want something from them or to make myself look better, but all of a sudden I can do something that could please God. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has regenerated me. This mysterious act. So we are regenerated. That's what enables us to believe in Christ and live a life of faith. So you are reborn and you are regenerated. And then we get down to verse 9. Let's talk about this third way we're changed. Nicodemus is confused. And he said to Jesus, how can these things be? And Jesus lets him have it. Uh, he said, look, you should know this. You're the scholar. You're the teacher of Israel. How is it that you're not getting this? You're not comprehending what I'm explaining. And, and Nicodemus has a problem, though. See, his problem is he's in bondage. In bondage to what? He has in his mind ideas that are going to have to be dealt with. He has an idea of right and wrong. And his tribe, these Pharisees, they all believe the same thing. That's why he's coming to Jesus at night. And this goes back to the reason 
that he's secretly coming to Jesus. He knows the man, he knows his teaching, he knows it's not in line with what he himself and his tribe thinks and feels. They've gained power, they have knowledge, and knowledge means power. They've got extensive laws and rules they live by. And Nicodemus' major malfunction is his unwillingness to live by faith in God alone. He's trusting his ability to keep a bunch of rules. And he thinks he's very good at it. So what does Jesus do? He brings up something he knows Nicodemus is familiar with. Look at verses 14 and 15. He said, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Nicodemus knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. See, there was this instance in the Old Testament where the Israelites had become impatient. God had taken them out of Egypt, and they're grumbling, and they're complaining. They're like, why did you just bring us out in the desert to die? And and God gets pretty darn fed up with them. He said, all right, Israelites, I'm going to bring in a bunch of snakes. I'm going to teach you to, you will die or you will trust me. He brings snakes, and they bite people, and people are suffering. And then they have a change of heart. And they start realizing, okay, they'd say, Moses, we screwed up. We really don't want to die of snake bites. So God hears them, and he comes to Moses in Numbers 21, 8. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. Just look look up at the snake. There's a bronze snake on a pole. Just look at it, and you won't die of this this snake bite. See, we're all born snake bit. And that poison that comes into us is called sin. And it's killing us. And all we have to do is trust on what Christ did on that cross. And we'll be shielded from that eternal penalty of sin. This is why hurting people are so much more open to the gospel. Because when you've been hurt down to the heart... You know something is not right about this world we live in. You know it's broken. There's something terribly wrong with it. There's been death or some horrible act or crime against them, and Jesus knew this. So what do we do? We get to John 3, 16. Because, see, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have what? He'll have eternal life. God's people are responsive to that message. We respond by believing the same way those old people in the Old Testament responded to those snake bites. You take that step of trusting in God's message. You look up. You look at the cross. You look at what Jesus did and take a step of faith to trust and believe in what Jesus did. He didn't come to condemn the world, but if you don't believe this, he says you're going to be condemned already. Who is the world? The unbelieving inhabitants. That's who he loved and came to save. I want to ask you just for a moment, if you would please just um, close your eyes where you're sitting. If you would, just with nobody looking around. See, you can respond to this message by faith right now. If you're just willing to say, God, right now, I know I'm a sinner. I believe that you died on the cross to save me from my sin. And I'm trusting in you and you alone to save me. If you can say that to Jesus right now, right where you're sitting. Pray that to him. And if you prayed that prayer today, if you responded to this gospel message, 
I would ask that you would let us know. As a matter of fact, with every eye closed, if you would just slip up a hand, if you said that prayer. Thank you. Thank you. I see those hands. Thank you. That is your first step in the road to becoming a disciple of Christ. Okay, you can lift your heads and open your eyes. See, by doing this, you can enjoy the hope that God provides. And a miracle happens whenever you pray that prayer. It may not feel like it. See, this Holy Spirit regeneration is a mysterious and secret act of God. So we were born, we're regenerated, we're responsive by faith to this message, and then finally we're enlightened. We're enlightened. Now, what do I mean by that? John explains in the verses after verse 17 that you will not escape eternal judgment. And he's making this point to Nicodemus. The Pharisees have to get this. You are not going to escape judgment just because you are a Jew. It doesn't work that way. But because you've trusted in Jesus, he continues saying that the believer will pursue the light. So let's look at the text here because it makes it clear there's a distinction between the believer and the unbeliever. Look what it says starting in verse 19. Now this is the basis for judging, that the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil deeds hates the light and does not come to the light so that their deeds will not be exposed. But the one who practices the truth comes to the light so that it may be plainly evident that his deeds have been done in God. So Christ, the light of the world, came in and instead of coming to the light, people stayed in darkness. Why? It's to hide their evil deeds. The word evil that's used there in verse 20. That the light the Christ brings, it shows worthlessness. See, that's the evil that's being referred to here. It could actually be translated worthlessness. Worthless deeds that amount to nothing. But people don't want worthlessness exposed. They don't want the, the bad stuff to be shown. And for for all the people, the reasons that people come up with to reject Christ, it could be hypocrites in the church, could be suffering in the world, could be whatever excuse is there. Ultimately, people don't come to Christ because they don't want to. There's an unwillingness. It's different for the people mentioned in verse 21. They're drawn to the light. They want the hope that Christ brings. Christ draws them to himself, and in turn, they get their deeds exposed. What is worthless? And instead of keeping worthless deeds, they're exposed and they can be rid of them. Two very different attitudes towards the light. People essentially turn from Jesus because the light that he brings exposes the evil things about them that they want to be hidden. See, the openness is very important. And God's love encourages people to come to the light. You know, it's sort of like this story I came across. This, these people, they own the... Uh, a family carpet cleaning business. They had a special service they were offering for the removal of pet urine odors. And to show potential customers their need for the service, they would come to their home, they would turn all the lights out, they'd bring a black light. And people were shocked by how their homes just lit up with that black light. Well, then they were horrified. And every drop and dribble could be seen on the carpet and the walls and the drapes and the furniture. The lampshades, by the way, we got one of these black lights, and I can tell you it's true. 
don't be afraid to come to my house. We've taken measures. But ultimately, the owner would say, look, I don't care what it costs. Just get all that stuff out of here. Now, see, those stains had been there all the time. See, now they're being exposed. It was invisible until the light hit them, the right kind of light. And it would have been cruel to show those customers the extent of their problem and say, well, too bad for you, and just walk away. That's not what they did. The guy said, I brought the light so that they may desperately want my cleaning services. And the same way God shines this light of his commandments, not just to make us feel guilty and leave us that way, is because he has a cleaning service to offer. And he wants us to be clean. He does that by making salvation available through Jesus Christ. So putting this all together, enjoy your blood-bought, spirit-transformed, ever-enlightened Christian life. There's a quote from A.W. Tozer I want to leave you with today. He said, Jesus Christ came not to condemn you, but to save you, knowing your name, knowing all about you, knowing your weight right now, knowing your age, knowing what you do, knowing where you live, knowing what you ate for supper and what you will eat for breakfast, where you will sleep tonight, how much your clothing costs, who your parents were. He knows you individually as though there were not another person in the entire world. He died for you as certainly as if you had been the only lost one. He knows the worst about you and is the one who loves you the most.